Shall we? Okay. Three, two, one. Hello, welcome to the first episode of Technically Speaking, a NatWest podcast where one of my best friends, Orju Karabork, and I, Wincy Wong, talk about topics in the evolving world of tech that we like. That are really important to the world, that have to be important, that we have to think about. So I think me and Orju started this podcast because we are very different people. Although we both work in tech, I'm probably more of a digital strategist and bourgeois. I'm more of a grunt. <laughs> I'm an engineer in the investment banking arm of NatWest, which is called NatWest Markets. And because of that, I spent a lot of time um, arguing with arguing with bourgeois, yes, about different <laughs> topics of tech. But actually, I think what's really interesting is that when we look at issues, we have very different ways of looking at topics. And we thought that that would be really interesting to bring out. So what we decided is that rather than just the two of us argue with each other, that it'd be much more interesting for you, perhaps, to listen to some experts talk bring about this. Bring in those. some credibility to the table. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to be talking about this episode, Wincy? So what we were thinking about was actually the topic of profits versus ethics in tech. And this is something that actually we grapple with constantly because every time someone wants to develop something that is, for example, ethically related, the first thing a banker will come and say is, what is your business case? When you're dealing with things like climate change or gender inequality or financial exclusion, it can be very difficult to showcase, well, how does doing a bunch of conferences or printing a bunch of leaflets about an issue actually result in profits? And I guess the the question here is, can we find a, a way of looking at what we're already doing and seeing if there are ethical considerations that we should be considering while engaging in those activities, right? As consumers become more aware, they're the ones who will be driving these organisations to actually start thinking about it. Because, you know, you can't make money unless your customers are happy. As your customers become more and more aware of ethical issues, you know, happening around them, then you're going to have to engage with them somehow. So Milton Friedman was an incredibly influential American economist. He put forward a theory in the 1970s that is still being referenced today. He believed that a company's sole obligation was to its shareholders. So the question is, in this age of increased social responsibility, Are we still in a place where businesses continue to care more about maximizing profit for their shareholders or are companies starting to care about addressing key social challenges that they're seeing as a result of their commercial activities? Could we not translate these activities into business opportunities, for example? So to help us explore this topic, I'd like to welcome our first guest, Professor Luciano Floridi. He is a professor of philosophy and ethics of information, as well as the director of the Digital Ethics Lab at the University of Oxford. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Floridi. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start by getting a sense of where you stand on the obligations of businesses. 
Are they obligated solely to make money for their shareholders, or do you see a wider purpose emerging where companies are addressing key social challenges through and as a result of their commercial activities? Normally, we do have a short view about what business is about.、Uh, it's about profit, which is a great thing, and it's about creation of wealth, which is exactly what makes the world a better place in many contexts. But business is more, and we know if we talk to the people involved. Is a very、uh, entrepreneurial, creative enterprise with risks, but also great rewards. Is about building and creating new realities. Is about improving, therefore, the human conditions. So, if you take a larger view, shall we say, a more philosophical perspective on business, sometimes it looks to me more like、uh, being an artist. Uh, a business person is,、uh, is someone who creates something out of intelligence, opportunities, constraints, and therefore has a huge impact on society. Now, today,、uh, that impact can be、uh, very positive, sometimes very negative. So we are getting more polarized, more extreme cases. It's very easy to、uh, get things wrong, and sometimes a bit more difficult to get them right. Some would say that the purpose of a business is solely to make a return to their shareholders. What do you think? I think that is true, but is a, a shallow truth, as it were. It's not false.、Uh, of course, shareholders are there, and shareholders wants to know what the business has been about. But we also speak about stakeholders. A business is part of a larger society. So, being a good citizen as a business、uh, entity within a wider society, that is also part today of the mission. So we're talking today about the business case for ethics. Do you think there is a business case for ethics? The case for ethics for business is a long-term case. You look at companies that have been around not for a year or two, but for decades, and those are companies that actually got their important social role in in a wider context, and they see themselves as making a huge difference in terms of what society accepts and sometimes. About what society prefers, so all of a sudden ethics becomes a fundamental plan for the long-term perspective. Now, for those who might be a bit sceptical listening to this, remember that some of the biggest companies in the world, in fact, the top 500,、uh, their value is mostly in terms of intangibles.、Uh, it could be your know-how, your reputation, the goodwill of your customers, the ability of your、uh, working force to stay and love what they're doing with you. For you now, there is a lot of ethics. It might not be capital E ethics, the kind of ethics that grandma used to <laughs> teach us, but it is about values and is about a positive impact. So definitely a case and definitely a long-term case. If anyone wants to talk in terms of a short-term quarterly report, maybe、uh, we need to have a different conversation. But if you want to be around for the next、uh, so ten or fifty years, ethics is on your side. So what does ethics mean in this context? So ethics, I mean,、uh, so many things for so many different people. Normally, we take it as a long list of "don't do this, don't do that." <laughs> But the truth is that for business and for society, it's about、uh, finding the good balance between constraints, which we all have—legal, factual, feasibility. And what society prefers to have as a good future, we want to work towards. So it's an ethics of doing the right thing and enabling people to take advantage of opportunities, as opposed to always, oh, don't do this, don't do that, constrain and avoid sort of hitting the wrong buttons. Remember, the ethics is also a lot about opportunity cost. Today, with the digital technologies, we Tend to avoid doing things just so that we don't run risks, and that can be also unethical. Not doing the right thing when the right thing is doable.
But there's also a body of thought that thrives on inequality to say that it is because of the inequality that you can gain more profits. True, completely. And that's when things are either overuse, misuse, underuse. Uh, so when business goes wrong, inequality grows. I take inequality as a clear signal that something has gone wrong, not something that inevitably is part of business, but when essentially business is a bit rotten or uh, doesn't fulfill a social role, inequality arises. So find inequality and you know that something is not working with the business model. The business model that is not working is the short-term quarterly return, uh, shareholders only, profit only. The idea is not wrong, but it's insufficiently right. So it's necessary, but largely insufficient. Is when business doesn't play a social role as it should, as a you know, good corporate citizenship, that we know that you know, inequality arises, and therefore we have the kind of circumstances that we unfortunately see around us today. Tech is now controlling pretty much all, all aspects of our lives nowadays. And one of the things that you talked about is how being ethical is a long-term gain. However, tech changes, or, or certainly in the last 15, 20 years, I would say, tech has been changing more and more rapidly. So how do you balance being ethical if you're running a tech company? I think we need to look at tech companies almost like divided in, in generations. Uh, so there are, there are very old in terms of, uh, not philosophically, we, we think in terms of millennia, but uh, say in terms of technology, you know, uh, and I don't want to name any particular company, but you know, we all know who they are. Companies you don't hear much about because maybe they are providing all the software you use in your office. Uh, companies who have been, uh, say, in the computer production business and now they do consultancy. Those companies you never or hardly ever hear about their ethical mistakes they learn the lesson the hard way, maybe with big, big fines in the past. So those companies say they allow me this old money, quote-unquote, uh, in tech. They know because they've been around for decades and they want to be around for centuries. Then we have the, the young generation, and that generation is still learning the lesson that uh, um, not going fast is irresponsible. Now, I think they are getting the picture. Uh, so the technology itself develops really quickly in a way that every week there's a new <laughs> trick to learn. Um, but the long-term strategies, well, they're pretty much the same. And that's where I hope the newcomers, the young, fresh money is going, joining the old money. Who decides what the ethics are? Ethics takes a long time to converge. It's like tectonic plates. They move, but they move very slowly. But don't tell me they are not moving. <laughs> so ethics moves very slowly. Quite reasonably so. We disagree, and part of the ethical approach to ethics is to enable disagreement, cherish disagreement. So it's almost like a self-defeating game. You want people to disagree, and yet at the end come to a similar conclusion. How do you manage that? Well, with patience. <laughs> and that's what people normally, including myself, we don't exercise. We want to see that right now, immediately. Surely we all agree on this, etc. But think of the, you know, the, the, the Declaration of Human Rights. Or more recently, about digital ethics, we have a single document at the European level. Uh, I was part of, I am part of the uh, high-level expert group that sort of uh, formulated those principles uh, for digital ethics, and especially the ethics of AI. That has been picked up by the OECD, uh, which then has been signed by tens of countries. And 
again uh, has been picked up by uh, the Chinese government, which has also come to pretty much the same conclusions. So all of a sudden we have European Union, OECDs, uh, China agreeing around similar principles for the ethics of AI. This is huge progress. Has happened and has taken years to get there. My problem is not that we will not get convergence, it's how long it's going to take, because we don't have much time. And hence, that comes to the frustration. There we go. Professor Floridi, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure speaking to you. <laughs> thank you. So while the professor helped us paint a picture of what the general thinking is on digital ethics today, our next guest is dealing with the realities of investing in ethical companies. So our next guest is Emma Steele. Emma is an investment manager for Ascension Ventures. Through their fund, Fair by Design, they're pursuing businesses where ethics are at the core of their mandate. And this is really interesting because what we want to understand is what is their business case for ethics? Investment funds are well known for being as for-profit as they come. So, hi Emma, thanks for joining us. Hi. Emma, let's start by walking the listeners through what it is that you do. You describe yourself as a social impact investor. What is that and what does that mean? Yes. So social impact investing can mean many different things uh, to different people. So I will define it in my particular context, which is investing in uh, early stage companies. And essentially, my role is to deploy a 10 million fund into about 30 businesses across various different sectors. But the fund has a specific social purpose and each company we choose to invest in needs to fulfill that social purpose. The fund itself is set up as a standard venture capital fund. The only difference is that the returns target isn't only financial, it's got a social purpose to it. So we have to be able to, within 10 years, contribute to eradicate the poverty premium in the UK. What do you mean by poverty premium? Essentially, it's a tax on the poor. It's effectively the fact that low-income households tend to pay more for goods and services across several sectors just because they're poor. Take energy, for example. A lot of low-income households actually can't afford to pay their bills by direct debit, so they'll choose prepayment meters, which are systematically more expensive. That's one premium. Then you add the fact that you know their, their washing machine may break. They can't afford to pay up front for that washing machine, so they might go to the payday loan market to get a payday loan. So financial sector and financial exclusion is very core to the poverty premium the uh, lack of access to affordable credit, the lack of information and data. You've got so many different premiums across the insurance sector where people tend to be penalised because they tend to live in a certain area which might be have more crime in it or you don't have a car so you have to pay 20% more to shop at your corner store. And all these premiums tend to aggregate. And on average, the University of Bristol did some research a couple of years ago, and they found that low-income households tend to pay just below £500 per year per household in those premiums. But whenever you get a payday loan in the equation, that average goes up to 2000 So it can be a very high proportion of a low-income salary. 
So you seem to be investing in companies that are targeting these populations that a lot of traditional, larger, for-profit corporates are looking at. Why does this matter? Well, the very reason why the fund was set up in the first place is because the cornerstone investor, Big Society Capital, and the other main investor, Joseph Roundtree Foundation, who originally have been doing a lot of work on poverty in general, discovered that actually the drivers of the poverty premium were often potentially derived by technology failures, by lack of efficiency in certain supply chains, um, by the lack of data which could potentially be solved by tech, by simply profit margins being too high. Um, Can you explain that a little bit more? The What do you mean by tech failures? So, you know, take um, the energy example um, I talked about earlier. The very reason why prepayment meters used to be more expensive is because they used to be serviced every year uh, and that had a cost associated to it. But now pretty much all the, the prepayment meters are digitized and there's no... There's no basis for the cost being higher. So it's kind of failure to reflect the true cost of certain services. It's also potentially a failure to adjust or make supply chains as efficient as they could be using technology and and resulting in specific premiums. I mean, it really depends on the sector you're looking at. The various different sectors will have various different problems assigned to it, which makes the problem very complex. And our focus and our specialism really varies, actually, depending on the sector. So energy innovations will be completely different to what we're looking at in the fintech sector, for example. Do you still care about making money? You know, absolutely. So... A lot of impact funds may have different returns target, but the thing they have in common is they have a return target. <laughs> um, so most of our investors uh, are actually foundations, but they all have a very specific financial returns target. Um, it is lower than your average venture capital fund overall, but we're still aiming for startups to make an exit within the 10 years. Talk to me a little bit about some of the companies that you're investing in and also what is that business case? So the business case is really related to the drivers. Because those drivers are often related to inefficiency or failures, there is a natural business case to say, actually, let's use tech to scale startups and scale businesses which have a business model which is inherently trying to support the low-income community by providing better, cheaper, more transparent and more trustworthy goods and services, effectively. That is the business case on a, in a simplified manner. And if you drill down per sector, there will be specific models um, which tend to be more appropriate um, using technology for that specific income community. Some of them may be consciously doing that already and they're coming to us because they're consciously ethical, but some of them actually didn't really realize they were doing it. They're just building an awesome service that is combating many different market failures, including the one faced by low-income households. And we then make them conscious of that and we, we help kind of galvanize that message for them. So it's almost as though, um, I mean, it comes back to what we were saying earlier about capitalizing on these opportunities that present themselves to us by way of commercial activities and looking at the social impact as well of that and trying to amplify it. 
So is that what you folk do as well? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're not a big fund. We're a 10 million fund. So just from an investment activity perspective, our priority is to help our companies scale enough so that they can prove evidence and attract commercial investment down the line. Is it difficult to find those investors? Um no, actually. And what we're finding that there's a lot more momentum for the specific areas we're looking at. As an example, one of our startups, Wagestream, just raised a big Series A. Recently, they raised 15 million from Boulderton Capital. And we invested a year ago in their pre-seed round. So what do they do? They allow you to draw on your wages early. So say as a salaried employee on a on a zero hour contract, um, you get paid monthly. You may still need to go to the payday loan market if something in the month happens and makes you vulnerable. So it allows you to draw on your on what you've earned pro rata early against a flat fee. So it's 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 kind of a an income smoothing tool. But it's not a loan, which is quite key. So it, it, it's uh, designed to get you out of the cycle of debt, which is a big issue. How do you attract these investors? What does the pitch look like? Frankly, purely commercial metrics that they were showing. It's They had very attractive unit economics and they were showing huge amounts of growth. And their growth itself was derived from a huge appetite. So they sell into employers and employers are more and more caring about their employee well-being. And actually, you know, when you think about where the kind of social conscious and uh, purpose is growing amongst the corporate community, actually employee well-being is a big thing. So, you know, they're really tapping into that. And um, the, the traction that they've been getting with big employers especially in the hospitality industry, has been enormous in one year. And they've gotten the message exactly right. Have you seen any changes in attitudes toward corporate social responsibility, um, environmental, social governance, uh, that sort of thing, in, in terms of the investment world? So I think in general, ESG or environmental um, social governance as a kind of individual entity is I think is disappearing in the corporates it's more and more about building ESG principles within your business model and that's what we're looking at and that's where the investment appetite is growing when looking at new business models is using your your kind of purpose and mission to have clarity over your growth strategy and you know doing good is not it's not just binary anymore your 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 business model is really linked to your purpose and vice versa. Your purpose will help you scale because it might be sustainable. Therefore, it's good in the long term, especially if you look at energy and new energy models, for instance. Uh, in the fintech world, um, being purposely led means that you're serving a portion of the population which has been excluded for a very long time. So you're, you're serving uh, a market which has been unutilized. So therefore, it makes commercial sense. So the relationship between purpose and commercial benefit is blurring, I think. And do you think there is such a thing as reputational capital? 
Um, definitely. So I think that really links to what I was talking about um, in terms of corporates caring about their employee well-being more and more. Um, if you look at business to consumer models, the consumer is becoming increasingly active in making choices with ethics in mind. Therefore, as a business, you have to build reputational capital to attract those consumers. A lot of um, the population in, in in these excluded areas that you're talking about that actually don't have access to tech. But you guys are investing in tech solutions. How do you bridge that gap? Well, one of the main drivers, which is the driver of a driver in a way, is digital exclusion, as you alluded to. And one of our areas of investment is digital inclusion. So one of our businesses is actually not a tech business. It's a little bit left field, but it's actually it's a training business that sells its services to housing association. It's called We Are Digital. And they train specifically in um, digital inclusion classes, financial inclusion classes, um, being uh, a key driver of the poverty premium, we we this was definitely in our thesis. But we we will tend to only choose tech solutions, but we have to be able to prove that you know, we are trying to serve as many people as possible. So we might look at non-tech models if it serves a specific digital inclusion purpose. So I guess, say I wanted to go to my organisation and make a case for more ethical thinking. Right now, I don't feel like I have enough. Ultimately, what I need is evidence that this is the way forward. So we are a fund, yes, but the Fair by Design programme also includes a campaign, which is hosted by Barrow Cadbury Foundation. And actually, their entire work is more lobbying activity, I suppose, trying to trying to influence change, trying to reach out to the key stakeholders where poverty premium changes might actually happen. And that, as you said, you know, they will interact with the government, uh, with the regulators to talk about different, you know, potential price caps when it comes to paying, you know, unreasonable interest rates on payday loans, for example. Um, it might be working with local councils and housing associations to deliver certain services to their um, to their users. It might be um, pushing, working with um, incumbent corporates to um, either acquire some of our startups, look at the evidence base that we're creating, um, but also change their own supply chain. You know, so as an example, in the in the insurance business, it's actually quite well known in the insurance market. There's a lot of inefficiencies in the supply chain. Just, you know, the, the contracts are very old, they're very expensive, which means that insurance premiums are non-transparent, very complicated. There's a whole business case for overhauling that. And it's pretty obvious. And it's about working with them to change that. But as you said, not all business models will be obviously inefficient and needing to be more ethical. I think if you as an entrepreneur uh, of your own company wants to try and push your company to be more ethical, you have to start to look at all your stakeholders and think about where the influence can be more impactful, i.e. is it your employees? Um, can you can you treat them better? Is it your customers? Uh, is it your supply chain? Do you pay them fairly? Do you pay them in advance? Um so it's kind of looking at all the stakeholders and, and trying to define your purpose. Are you seeing that there's a greater appetite for people who do what you guys do? I think so. 
I think it's about articulating it in a way that fits with their own agenda. Um, the issue with the poverty premium is that it's multi-sector. It's It really affects very different problems across the different sectors. So it's about articulating it in a way which makes sense to people. So in the financial exclusion or inclusion area, there is a lot of appetite for innovation. There's a lot of appetite for investment just because it makes very obvious commercial sense. Thank you so much for joining us, Emma. That gave us some great insight into how to build a business case for ethics. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Technically Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. This short series on tech has been sponsored by NatWest and will be running for the next few weeks. But if you want to see Borju and I live in person talking about more topics in tech, then join us at the conference we're organizing in October here in London. It's called FutureFit, Upskilling for the Tech-Powered Future. To learn more about the topics we've discussed today and lots of other practical tools, insight and knowledge, just search NatWest Business Hub or head to natwestbusinesshub.com. Thank you for listening.